Thank you for listening to this episode of Great Minds, a podcast from Advertising Week presented by Think with Google. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to check out Industry Spotlights by Think with Google, available now on our website at advertisingweek.com slash Google. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Mike Henry. And Mike uh, is someone we've really been looking forward to talking to. He's got a really unique job and a really unique perspective. Uh, he's the managing director of Google Ads for their financial services practice. Has been with the company about 14 years. Is that right, Mike? Yep, 14 years has passed. Amazing. And you don't, you don't see tenures like that these days. So we're going to talk about that and get into the present day, of course, but Mike, uh, one of the things that we share in common, our, our crack Great Minds research team is at it, as always, researching, in this case, the Mike Henry archives. Uh, and something that binds us is we both worked as kids. I did a lot of jobs and hustled. Yeah. Yep. You did a lot of jobs and hustled. And you also, very early on, did exactly, you know, we did the same things, Mike, from different directions. I was on mass transit going from where I grew up in Queens into Manhattan to yep. intern. You were coming in from Jersey to work at one of the iconic places in culture, WNEW yeah. radio. So I'd love to talk about your early days carrying two bags around 18, maybe 36 holes yep. and, and, yep. and life lessons from that part of your life. And at some point, I'd love to talk a little bit about WNEW. So we're starting off in you know, yeah, early, early, early days, but I think it'll really, really, uh, you got a great story to tell and I want people to hear it. Awesome. Uh, Matt, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited for the conversation. So do you, do you want me to start with some of those childhood well, work I, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, th those experiences I find shape us. Yeah. And really build character in us. And they also reveal character. And I wonder, Mike, maybe a good place for us to start is, to me, golf is a game that reveals character. And yeah. the chance that you had to learn that and to be in the company of people, some who were probably really gracious, some who were probably less gracious. <laughs> yes, you probably right. learned some things that I would think yeah. probably stay with you your whole life. Yeah, there, there were certain loops you wanted and certain loops you didn't. And um, when you got to the caddy yard in the morning at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning, uh, often you could see that the starter had put certain bags out, right? These were, these were you know, people that were going to be playing that day. And you knew from the bags who those people were. You knew the canary yellow bag was uh, a guy named Mr. Jacobus and you knew the red bag was somebody else. And there were certain certain loops you wanted and certain loops you really, you really didn't. So, uh, but I'll go back to the, the reason why I was caddying was not just to make some you know, to money, to money, to, you know, to um, be able to, you know, have a social life. But I was um, at that point uh, interning for free at, um, at WNEWFM radio, a rock station, a heritage rock station in, in New York city that had been around for a long time uh, by then. And I was caddying to earn the money to pay for the train fare into Manhattan five days a week. So on the weekends, I'd, you know, bust my butt on the golf course, uh, try to make, you know, at least three loop, loops over the course of a weekend, if not four, 
and then that would pay my pay my way in into and out of Manhattan from New Jersey and and hopefully also a you know a four dollar lunch. And that's hard physical work. I mean, I'm a, a an amateur golfer, and that's a, that's on my best day. I would call myself that. Uh, and walking, whether you're carrying or not, you know that, that's a lot. You're carrying two bags. And I, I've always think there's also a value in some physical labor and in, in the body mind connection, but yep. in, in the mind area, Mike golf reveals character and those lessons I think are germane, you know, in the business world. Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, yeah, there was the, there was the, the physical challenge of a, a, you know, a very hilly course and it really was a very hilly course on those, you know, hot, humid, you know, July afternoons, you know, in New Jersey um, but also, I, I never waited tables, Matt, but um, I believe that caddying is similar to waiting tables in that, you know, mentally, you got to be on your game, right? You're carrying two, uh, two bags, so you got to know where your players' balls are. You got to be pacing off the distances. You got to be staying ahead of the group. You got to be reading the putts. Um, and like you pointed out, you're going to have some players that are going to be enjoyable to caddy for uh, and that are going to, you know, appreciate the good advice you give them along the way. Uh, and maybe forgive you for losing track of a ball somewhere because, you know, the damn thing went, you know, a hundred yards into the woods and you're just not going to find that one, especially with all this poison ivy. But you also have, you know, I also had players that were, you know, um, impatient, particularly as they were playing poorly, right. They would, they would sometimes take out their frustration, uh, not on themselves, but rather on the caddy. And so one of the things that my older brothers who were all caddies themselves taught me was, um, you know, how to you know, how to do customer service well over the course of 18 holes, but also how to stand up for yourself a little bit. If you've got a, if you've got a customer who's frankly, you know, abusive. And I think, um, you know, fortunately I see very few of those, um, you know, later in my career, but uh, th those were good lessons. And, and resonant throughout a career. I mean, dealing with people, yeah. the whole notion of something that, you know, is a diminishing commodity in our country yeah. now in so many ways, basic civility. Yes. You know, yes. That's that's so important. And, and I really I can't think of a more Aberdeen proving ground to reveal character than that experience and hustling, making a buck. I think we were talking before when I was a kid, I, one of my jobs was I had a chipwich cart and yeah. sold ice cream in Manhattan. And, you know, pick, picking up that cart. It was the back of a Burger King on the block that was J&R Music World. Back in the day, there was a big, big music store. And eventually they had the whole block on Park Row, right by City Hall. And it was J&R Music World. And eventually it became Computer World and Electronic. And they, they had almost the whole block. There was one holdout at Burger King. And in the back, that's where we would pick up our ice cream cart. And then the boss would tell you where to stand, what corner to go to each day and then you'd have to bring it back. And it was very heavy with a lot of dry ice, which you didn't want to touch with your bare hands. I remember oh, that yeah. very specifically. Yep. Oh my goodness. Uh, okay. That's a great story. And, and these, you know, these are the, the childhood jobs that, you know, um, or at least, at least in the adolescent years, I really agree with you. I think these are the jobs that define us, right? They require work ethic, work intensity mm -hmm. and, and a lot of hustle. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you got to think on your feet when you're in a situation and there you are, you've got, you know, one or more, you know, uh, yep. uh, uh, golfers who are probably not nearly as good as they think they are, you know, <laughs> chewing you out over something that that's revealing and builds character at the same time. Fantastic. Yep. So before we got on air, Mike, we were talking a little bit about old New York rock and roll radio and 
some giants yeah. who you worked, you know, for and with at that time, uh, Scott Muni and Pat St. John and Carol Miller and yeah. uh, Satellite has kept brought some of those old voices back. Um, but, uh, that must've been an incredibly exciting period and radio was, you know, has sort of been reinvented today with the whole podcast genre. It's very interesting how audio is gone, but back then good old FM rock and roll radio was King. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, so these are the days, you know, when I'm in in high school and college in the eighties and nineties, and, you know, I was a huge music fan as were my brothers and, you know, the place to find music, right, was FM radio. And um, so I kind of became a, a bit of a radio dork. I mean, I, you know, I, I was up and down the, the New York City radio dial, you know, all day long. And I started to think that it could actually be really amazing to have a career in radio behind the microphone. And the closest I could get to that, well, besides doing college radio up in New Hampshire, where I was in school, the closest I could get to sort of the big time New York City was to intern, right, for free, at NEW. And it was just, you know, it was, you know, I was just sitting in the, you know, I was sitting in the, uh, in the mailroom, right. Mailing out prizes. That was most of the extent of, of, of my role. Um, but also, uh, you know, occasionally like accompanying DJs to uh, appearances, but it really was, I mean, I was frankly starstruck, you know, that Scott Muni, right. Knew my name or that Carol Miller would say good morning or Pat St. John would, you know, would, would greet me. It was really an awesome experience. And, and I also think that, my one of the things that I really appreciated about radio was that a radio station, you know, was really a brand. It was my first experience of how you could have two different radio stations playing roughly the same music, but the way that they did the audio, you know, imaging and packaging and the personalities could could create two distinctly different brands. And so in those days, it was NEW versus K Rock, right? They were kind of both doing an album rock format, but they've sounded very very different. Um, and I think those were also some of the early lessons that I took around, you know, how, how do you build a brand? How do you sustain a brand? Fantastic stuff. And the media landscape so different then. Yeah. Uh, both of us sounds like United grounded in old school, you know, FM rock and roll radio, but that's around the time when brands that are no longer here start to emerge. I remember Lycos and Alta Vista and Disney's Go Adventure. This yes. was this was years before YouTube. YouTube, yeah. I think, was 2006, 2007. So we're, yep. we're a decade ahead of that. Yep. Talk about you and technology, Mike. Were you curious about technology? Were you an early adapter? You know, no, I would no, I was not an early adopter. Although I do remember in college, one of my roommates had a, um, it was like a cable music subscription, yeah, subscription service. It was called DMX. And it gave you the, like this unlimited range of commercial free stations. They were just, they were just jukeboxes, just playing music. There were no personalities, no real packaging. But I remember in those days having the idea that, well, what if I could pay to be able to have all the music I wanted to have in one place and I could just be able to sort of access it from anywhere, anytime. Um, clearly there were people way ahead of me on that concept. Um, but that was, that was the first time that I really thought about how technology could make my life better, but I wasn't necessarily an early adopter in technology. And I was, you know, I was two years at Leo Burnett doing, you know, old school marketing and advertising, um, you know, TV, radio billboards as an account guy, I was not a creative, but as an account guy. And, um, 
I, when I got the opportunity to come out to San Francisco in 2000 to join a startup um, that one of my college friends was working at, I didn't necessarily feel drawn to tech, but I did find that I was pretty good at explaining the benefits of tech in the language of business. And so that was one of the things that I think has made me, you know, reasonably effective over the years is, you know, I think I'm pretty good at being able to talk to a CMO or a CFO or a CEO uh, about how Google technology can power their business. Okay. So that's a very big leap we just made. And we're going to go back to Burnett um, and to what you just said, because I think it's so insightful in so many ways, but I don't want to gloss over something else. You went to two fantastic schools. One of the things we haven't talked about much on Great Minds and probably should talk more about is that educational foundation. I was very lucky. I went to Emory and I loved it. And uh, I didn't learn things that I still use today from a factual vantage point, but I think I learned how to think. And I Mm -hmm. I think that's, that was for me, the value of sociology in particular. Um, Talk about Dartmouth and talk about Stanford, two of the great, great institutions, very different cultures, different parts of the country, different uh, campuses. I played golf once at Stanford, very poorly, I might add, Uh, (laughs) and, but I loved every minute of it. And uh, uh, talk about that because that's, that's quite a one, two punch there. Yeah, Matt, can I, can I go back a little bit, even to high school? I I was, my my parents believed, you know, strongly in education. My dad was, you know, my mom's a nurse. My dad was, you know, working for Bethlehem Steel for, I think, 43 years, something like that. He only worked for one company. And I can assure you that over the decades he was there, um, you know, the business was, got more and more challenged. And yet my parents figured out ways to, you know, you know, to borrow and leverage to, to, to be able to send us to, to some really wonderful schools. But one of the, the high school that I went to in New Jersey was called Delbarton Catholic School, Benedictine School. And there were two things I learned at Delbarton that have really stayed with me. Um, the first is the, ex, you know, the um, responsibility that we all have to be of service. And they used to say to us, you've been given much, therefore you owe much. And sometimes when I'm working on something at work that is, you know, really challenging or kind of unpleasant, I try to think of it as service. I try to think of the fact that I'm not doing this really for the money. I'm doing this to solve an important problem. The other thing that they um, taught us there was the school's motto was, uh, I think it's Latin, Sucisa Vereshit, which means uh, cut down and it grows back stronger. And so that was all about resilience, the idea that, you know, challenge uh, always makes us better. And so those, I think, are sort of like philosophical foundations for me and how I go about my work and, you know, I think even my life. When I got to Dartmouth, um, you know, at Dartmouth, I, you know, I, I focused a lot on uh, sociology and psychology, but, but frankly, I was kind of running the radio station. You know, that's kind of what I was spending most of my time doing. We had an FM station, an AM station, and It was an incredible creative outlet for me, but also an opportunity to understand like, you know, how do you lead people? How do you manage a business? Because these were commercial operations. Um, And so, you know, like you, Matt, I think I came away from um, my Dartmouth experience, not necessarily with technical skills, but with a pretty good sense as to how to, um, to think and how to reason and how to sort of posit an argument, right. That, that is, that is coherent and, and, and compelling. When I then went on to um, business school at Stanford years later, 
um, that was a very different experience. If, if there were uh, days and maybe evenings where I didn't uh, study quite as hard as I could have or should have at Dartmouth, um, at Stanford, I really leaned into the education. And for many of my, well, maybe for some of my classmates, it was kind of the opposite. They worked their butts off in college. And then they went to like into like investment banking where they worked, you know, 10,000 hours a week for a couple of years. Then they went to business school and they, they relaxed a little bit. Right. Um, when I got to Stanford, I really, really committed to the learning. You know, I showed up for class. I did all the reading, including the supplemental reading. You know, I took every opportunity I could to, you know, meet with professors and, and, and learn from them. And so two, two things that I learned at Stanford were number one, the technical skills that I was going to need to be, I think, effective in business, accounting, um, you know, economics, finance, you know, the list goes on. But, but more so, I think Stanford was very good at, at teaching us about leadership. And I was one of those people who always thought that you're kind of like either a born leader or, or you're not. But I think Stanford taught me that there are practices that people can put into place um, if they're willing uh, in order to become really good leaders. And that, that's primarily what I took away from Stanford was just sort of like how to lead well. And I, you know, I hope I, I hope I lead reasonably well. And I like that at the graduate level, they had you do an internship. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. So, um, so this is between first and second year. Um, And, you know, here's a story that goes back to, that goes back to radio. When I came into Stanford, I said that I, they said, what, how are you going to use this education? What do you want to do after Stanford? And I said, well, eventually I'd like to become the CEO of either Sirius or XM satellite radio, right? They were just sort of taking off. And and I thought, all right, this is the future of radio. I interviewed for um, a position. I got an interview for a a position in strategy at Sirius, I think it was, in New York City. Mel Karmazin, former CEO of CBS at the time, he was was running Sirius. And I got an offer that was exciting, except Mel declared that, well, you're a radio intern and, and radio interns don't get paid. Now I'm 30, I'm 30 years old at this point, right? I've worked a number of years and he's suggesting that I should, you know, just work for free for, for 10 or 12 weeks. And so um, similar to when a golfer would throw their head cover at me in frustration on the golf course, I decided to stand up for myself in that, in that moment and say, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to work for free. And I went to eBay instead where I learned, you know, I learned plenty of, you know, wonderful things at eBay that have served me uh, years later. So yeah, there's that opportunity to get some work experience between first and second year. And I do think the experience working at eBay led me to Google. Yeah. Cause that was a, a, an interesting time still with early, early days in the digital revolution. eBay yeah. was a real powerhouse back in the Oh day. yeah. Still yep. is, but was yep. really potent then. Yes. And at that point under Meg Whitman's leadership, eBay had I think only recently purchased PayPal and also Skype. And, and the vision was looking for, you know, if, if we're hosting, you know, um, you know, a, a market here, you know, this platform, let's also make it easy for buyers and sellers to pay each other. So that was PayPal. And then let's make it easy for buyers and sellers to be able to communicate with each other easily and at low cost. And so that was Skype. Um, you know, I think that the execution maybe wasn't uh, where it could have been in years hence. And so, you know, the, it's been broken up, but at that point it was um, yeah. eBay was a powerhouse and, and with a lot of potential. And you really see Mike, I think how the Mike Henry narrative, you know, starts to evolve that early experience, building character, understanding 
how to how people reveal character and what to do with that and how to handle those curveballs that and sometimes fastballs that come at your head Uh, and and early exposure to one of the big players and a whole emerging ecosystem that would ultimately make a lot of sense leading to overseeing the financial services practice at Google. You can see how that early foundation helped shape that pathway. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think it was Steve Jobs who, in one of his commencement addresses, said years ago that you know the, the narrative is only only makes sense in the rearview mirror. Right at the time, um, you know, I couldn't see how all these things were leading to anything in particular. Um, but you know, Steve Jobs used to talk about how he, you know, took classes in topography. Uh, is that is that the word topography? Right, like type typeface, right? Uh, typography, I think that would be typography. Can I we edit so. that? Top, yeah. top, topography would be land, I believe. And I type, don't think I've got think, either of the terms right. I th- or it could be a third thing that neither of us knows. God knows. Yeah. Fine, keep going. Okay, I'll ask you to edit this out. Um, so uh, you know, I just I I have found all that right, all Rich, these Richard, we're editing editing. That's when I signal to Richard, Mike. That means we're going to edit something out. All right. Cool. Okay, let's keep keep rolling. Um. So, you know, yeah, so all these experiences, and, I, you know, I wasn't sure where all the experiences were building toward at the time, but I think they, you know, have, have enabled me to be, you know, a, a pretty decent leader of teams at Google, um, you know, in, a, in an environment that is very complex and always evolving and, and evolving more and more quickly and working with financial services customers who are themselves in an industry that is uh, fast evolving and subject to um, lots and lots of regulatory scrutiny as, you know, as they should be, but that makes, that makes things interesting. All right. So we've got a lot to talk about, about your tenure at Google and, and what you're doing now. And you're in one of the hottest categories in all of industry. Uh, yeah. It's hard to find, especially with the rise of FinTech, amazing what's going yeah. on in that space. And you're helping the biggest players in the world literally figure out how to get the most out of the web, which is an enormous yeah enormous portfolio. But we touched on it earlier. We can't gloss over the time you spent at one of the legendary creative shops in our business, Leo Burnett. Yep. Yeah. Leo Burnett, um, when I was, uh, you know, spring of senior year in college, as, as, you know, a lot of my friends were interviewing for the, you know, consulting um, firms and investment banks, I really wanted to make sure that I stayed in a, in a creative profession. And Leo Burnett, Man, like I, I remember sitting in the career services office and, and reading about Leo Burnett's heritage and culture and how Leo Burnett himself, his, you know, his wisdom remained, you know, sort of implanted all over the agency. And so I was lucky enough to get the job, you know, left New Hampshire, went to Chicago, spent two years at Burnett, um, working on brands like, you know, Oldsmobile, which, um, you know, uh, you know, did did not make it as GM sort of consolidated its brands, but it was a great experience to get some of that classic marketing experience that Burnett trained us in and to do it in an agency that had created, you know, these um, iconic, memorable, fun brands and characters. I mean, if if you think about like, you know, Pillsbury Doughboy and the Keebler Elves and Tony the Tiger and Toucan Sam, I mean, the list goes on and on. It was amazing what Burnett had created. And I, I so appreciated Burnett's deep focus on really great creative and how, how some of the art directors and copywriters, I would see these guys and, and women, you know, obsess about the smallest details because they really wanted 
to tell the story of a brand in a way that was going to going to last for you know decades, if not if not generations. Yeah, you'll love this story. So our first year of advertising week in New York was 2004, and the entire event was at what was then called the Museum of Television and Radio. Now it's the Paley Center for Media on 52nd Street. Uh, and the entire thing was there. And there's a beautiful gallery space there, the Spielberg Gallery. And our very first year, we did an exhibit with Leo Burnett on the whole history of all those characters that you mentioned. The Keebler Elves and the Doughboy and uh, the Green Giant and the... Yeah. Uh, little sprout and and we yep. told the whole and linda wolf i think was the president then and That's right. all yep. the burnett they all came from chicago and it was really wonderful and it was yep. one of the great uh, one of the one of the nicest little things that we ever did and it was our very first year yeah i i love that story and um you know it's one of the things that i worry about a little bit all these years later in marketing is i'm not sure that 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 brands are thinking enough and investing enough in great creative that will, that will sustain for years and years to come. I think sometimes it's easy to focus on, you know, sort of the media and, um, and sort of promotions that drive these, you know, short-term, you know, spikes in sales, but, you know, how do you create a really enduring brand? I, I worry that that's kind of a lost art or it's a, it's an art that, that is, being gradually lost. Yeah, I, I certainly think it's on the ropes. I, I agree with you. And, yeah. uh, you know, you end up as a guy who builds brands at and for Google. I mean, I'm really starting to see where this all comes together now. You learn about great brands working at WNEW and how those DJs were brands and, you know, early, early experience you we both love that old rock and roll those are the bands that sustain so worrying yeah. today about things having staying power i completely no. get you know what you're saying there and i think that staying power is a real measure of success i mean i'm looking now to figure out a way to go to one of the you know tours uh, one of the stops on the stones tour you know yeah. i'm looking at like detroit in mid november cuz they're not coming to new york yeah you know, and that's, I went to the last stone show I was ever going to many times and they're still here, yep. you know, amazing and, and amazing a, and a great brand. So yep. let's talk about that road that begins in 07 at Google and yep. you join working, I think in tech and telcos. Yep, exactly right. But you mentioned that um, eBay sort of helped get you there. Was that metaphorical or was yeah. that substantive? You know, I think that was um, a, a little of both. I think I think in in eBay, I got a sense for how the tech world uh, operates and how fast uh, the tech world moves, and that became exciting for me. And <clears throat> when I um, finished business school, what I, I thought I would do was go to Google for a quick year. It seemed like a safe place to go. Even though I'll tell you, Matt, a lot of my classmates and, and even some mentors told me, Google's already IPO'd. Why would you go there now? Right? Um, the the it's company too, has, It's too late. You already missed it, they were saying. Yeah, you already missed it. Like it's a right. search engine. It's a one-trick pony. What else is Google going to become? And yet I thought, all right, well, I'll go there. I'll spend, I'll spend a year while I figure out what I really want to do next. Now, that was you know 14 years, years ago and, and seven distinctly different jobs that I've had over the course of 14 years. And that's, you know, that's what has kept me at Google is I'm, I'm constantly learning. 
I am expected by my customers to bring thought leadership. And, you know, frankly, I, I don't see, you know, even my teams that are, you know, the, the teams that are in advertising sales, I don't see us as selling anything really. Maybe that's, maybe I should, but I see us as evangelizing what we see working for advertisers across lots of different industries. And then hopefully guiding our customers as to how they can adopt those same best practice around best practices around, you know, tech and media that's going to really serve evolving consumer demand. Yeah, no, in so many ways, it's the manifestation of sort of the holy grail of what we only could dream about in terms of being able to connect people. Yes, yes, and 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 Matt, I love that you just brought that up because I remember at Leo Burnett being taught that. Um, great marketing is about getting the right message in front of the right, you know, the right person at the right time. But that was kind of theo- that was just kind of theoretical back then, right? You know, you you sort of you know you put up your billboards and you ran your TV ads and you hoped that some significant percentage of your target audience would see that stuff, but you couldn't really be sure. And that was what was compelling for me about about working at Google is I knew that truly the technology was going to allow us to get the right message, the right offer in front of the right user at the right time. And increasingly, we're able to do that for the right price, right? Help the advertiser invest in acquiring a customer or retaining a customer on, on a level that is commensurate with that user's long-term life ter- lifetime value to the, to the enterprise, right? I mean, this stuff, was, this stuff was visionary, but not real 20 years ago. And now it's it's still visionary and now it's, it's actually real. It sure is. So you mentioned Burnett and training and the old agencies really invested very heavily in their people, yeah. legendarily so, the creative shops in particular. Talk about your experience at Google from a training vantage point and the company, Mike, that you joined in 2007 was a much smaller company than what it is today. Yeah, well, when I when I joined, I think we were I think we were about fifteen or seventeen thousand people. We're obviously you know multiples of that of that now, but I would say that it was pretty chaotic. And so when I got there, I think the company was at a stage where it was kind of moving from being this scrappy startup to now a really big company with a lot of people and a lot of revenue, but not a lot of structure and process. And so I will confess that after about six months at Google, I was trying to get out. I thought, oh my God, this place is just a mess. And there wasn't really much formal training other than like your first day in the office where you learned, you get your laptop set up. There wasn't a lot of formal training and the product set was, you know, it wasn't nearly as complex and robust as it is today, but it was still pretty, pretty extensive. And I remember really struggling to get my head around, how do we, how do we organize all this stuff so that we can take this to customers in a way that all these different products and solutions are going to resonate. I think we've gotten much better at that over the years. And, and there was a period at Google where I used to hear whispers in the hall from people saying, oh, this place is getting McKinseyified, right? All these McKinsey types are coming in here and adding structure and process. And the reality is, I think we needed that structure and process. And I think, you know, folks from McKinsey and Bain and BCG and Deloitte, all, all these folks who have come in have really helped us to get a lot more buttoned up. Let's let's jump ahead a little bit, Mike, and let's really dig into what's happening in the financial services sector. It's a hot, hot area. 
talk about the last two years, how it's yeah. evolved and kind of where we are now. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I first started working in financial services uh, about three, three and a half years ago, I thought, boy, you know, this is, this is a really interesting space, fast evolving space, lots of regulatory, you know, um, uh, requirements to comply with. But then COVID hit. And one of the things that, um, that I thought was most poignant about sort of this COVID moment is how it has turned out that there is, has been this, you know, sort of K-shaped recovery, right? There are people like people working in tech who, have largely been able to you know, stay home, work from home, continue to earn livings, have a lot of stability in our lives, have access to healthcare. So we, you know, for the most part, are incredibly lucky to be safe and healthy. And then you've got other folks who, um, you know, socioeconomically are, are disadvantaged for any number of reasons. And we have seen the impact of, you know, of, of their financial challenges on their physical and mental health. And so I think, you know, that was always the case, but I think during COVID, I have felt more and more sort of purpose and urgency around the folks who happen to be on the, you know, the lower end of that K-shaped recovery who are still struggling. And I'm really, you know, I've, I've increasingly realized over time that I do think that we at Google and also financial services companies have not only the opportunity, but the responsibility to help consumers achieve financial wellness, regardless of, of their station in life, so to speak. I mean, financial wellness is has just such a huge impact on mental and physical health. And you know, you couldn't write this only with the benefit of hindsight, as you said earlier. But what you're really saying goes back to everything you talked about earlier and what you learned at the Del Barton School. Only now the stakes are much yeah. higher yeah. and you're able to help people's lives yeah. on a grand scale. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm also inspired by, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I won't name names, but there's a, there's a lot of, for fear of leaving somebody out, but there are a lot of financial services companies, not only those that are existing, but also, you know, up and comers who are taking seriously this opportunity to serve the unbanked and the underbanked all around the world. Um, and also help folks who, you know, who for whatever reason in their life don't get taught about financial literacy and financial wellness and how it's important to save. And it's also important to invest, right? It's also important to invest so that your money doesn't lose power over time. You know, I, I think a lot of companies are taking seriously the, the, the responsibility to educate folks and provide them with products and clarity around how to manage their financial lives. So, Mike, fintech is one of the hottest areas of our business within yep. the financial services sector from every vantage point. I had a long uh, conversation. He was on Great Minds recently. David Jones, our old friend who led Havas globally for many years and yep. is the founder of you and Mr. Jones, very dynamic holding company he's building. And his whole value proposition is around brand tech. And inevitably, we got off on a tangent about fintech. I'm a yep. layman. I don't really understand what that really means when people talk about fintech, I, I, you know, beyond the, yep. the, the headline. Talk about innovation in the tech sector, in financial services, and what you're keeping an eye on there and how Google is managing to stay ahead 
of that fast moving tech freight train? Yeah. So um, I talked about sort of the um, the importance of, of financial wellness. Um, I think, you know, like in any, let me just pause. Uh, you might want to edit that out. Well, Who do we Richard, shout out to? Richard. Yeah. Okay. So we've, we've talked about the importance of financial wellness in people's lives. Um, the other thing though, to think about is, is in fintech and, and fintech is such a, it's such a, you know, ambiguously defined space. Some people think that, you know, any company that is, you know, doing financial innovation, that they're a fintech. Others think that, well, it's only really these, you know, brand new challenger brands that, that's fintech. Others think that fintech is, is the crypto space exclusively. But I think what we're seeing is that consumers who have had experiences with, you know, interfaces like what Google provides or what Amazon provides or what so many other companies are providing, these fast, frictionless, intuitive, personalized experiences, consumers are now expecting that across industries. And so when they, you know, when they're working with their bank or working with their insurance company, they want things to be clear, easy, simple, fast. They want to be able to get the answer that is not just right, but the answer that is right for them. I actually remember, Matt, hearing Eric Schmidt you know, our, our CEO and, and um, board chair from, chair from long ago, 10 or 12 years ago, he was saying at Google, we need to move from respond, right? Responding to a user's query to assist and suggest because the right answer for Mike is not necessarily the right answer for Matt, right? And we need to understand something about who you are and what your context is to be able to get you the best answer. And I think now, in the financial services space, and this is being driven by fintech, companies are realizing that they can provide these same types of really great experiences that consumers have learned to expect in other places with respect to managing their financial lives. Absolutely fantastic. So Mike, uh, this has been such a joy and, and uh, I love that we spend so much time talking about the early days because I, I think it's a great, great story that I'm glad we got to tell. Uh, Give us a sense, we come back in a year, we reunite and we do uh, uh, our episode two. What do you think we'll be talking about a year from now in our industry? And you can take that question any way you want to go. Yeah, um, there are some things that I think are, are um, uh, you know, sec- secular trends that, that I think you know, it's safe to assume that these are going to endure for you know, the next year and, and beyond is, first of all, that financial services companies need to continue to focus on creating these great customer experiences. Second thing is they need to, they need to figure out ways to use technology to automate their operations so that they can operate profitably. The third thing is, and this is particularly true of the legacy brands, is they need to build for speed and agility. So many of the traditional financial services brands are mired in decades old infrastructure and technology that no longer serves them well. Um, and, you know, and, and what ends up happening is not only are their organizations, uh, siloed, um, but so is their, so is the data that they have on their, on their customers also siloed. And so they can't possibly serve the customer, um, as well as they might be able to otherwise. And that's one of the reasons that fintechs are so promising is, is they're coming in without all that old infrastructure, all that old baggage, right? They're streamlined and they can move quickly. And then I think though, the, the, the last one is around, you know, security and, and, and regulatory concerns, right? You know, we've seen an uptick in, in financial fraud over the course of COVID, right? So at exactly the time that consumers 
need financial help, there's bad actors out there all over the world trying to take advantage of them. And so, you know, these are two terms from financial services, KYC and AML. KYC is know your customer. Bank, you know, banks and other institutions need to make sure that the person who's opening the account is who they say they are. And then AML is anti-money laundering. There's, there are all sorts of opportunities now to bring the power of data processing and machine learning to those problems to be able to make sure that we are more quickly, more accurately detecting where fraud might be occurring. And then the last piece, I think, in the regulatory space is, is data privacy. And, you know, we've probably talked, you know, plenty, although it's an important conversation about, you know, data privacy for consumers, particularly with respect to digital advertising. And I think it's one of the things that's exciting at Google is, you know, we are taking a very thoughtful approach here. And we are looking to create solutions that allow advertisers to still be able to generate really good ROI, but in ways that violate neither the spirit nor the, nor the, the actual law um, of, of privacy regulations that continue to change. And then I guess the, the thing that I think is a little harder to call is you know, the, the crypto space. I mean, this is just such a, such a game changer in financial services. I, you know, I think it's very hard to make a call uh, at this point as to, you know, which currencies are going to, you know, succeed, so to speak, and, and, and which aren't. But I think it's pretty clear that, that you know, that um, blockchain and, and the cryptocurrencies that blockchain enables, this is, this is something real that is, that is here to stay. This is not the gimmick that some people thought it was a few years ago. I would love, if you know a good person for us to talk to about that, I would love to have you and that expert come back on because I think we have to talk about that. You have to talk about NFTs. Yep. These are things that are you know, becoming part of the financial and the business landscape. Yeah. And enormous, enormous gaps in education there, I think. Totally. And it's, you know, it is, it is pretty, you know, it's, it's pretty heady stuff. If, if, you know, you try to read about blockchain and how it works, it gets, gets pretty confusing pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, I think particularly, you know, there, there are folks that, that I know who have recently joined uh, Coinbase and I think have really um, clear perspectives on what's happening in the space and what the opportunities are. Great, great. Well, I, I'd love to do that. You know, I guess as one sun rises, another sets, right? On my block in yep. my town in Port Washington, another big store that's been there forever is about to go out of business. And that whole block pretty much will be empty. So that part of our economy, sun setting as the sun rises in others. And I guess that's always the nature. That's the circle of life, I suppose. It's that's the how, circle what, of life. That's what Walt yep. Disney would tell us, right? Yep. All right. Well, Mike, thanks so much for doing this. Absolute joy to talk to you. Yeah, Matt, this was awesome. I really appreciate it. And I especially appreciated the, um, the walk down memory lane and, uh, and those days at WNEWFN. Thank you for listening to this episode of Great Minds, a podcast from Advertising Week presented by Think with Google. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to check out Industry Spotlights by Think with Google, available now on our website at advertisingweek.com/google. Slash